Turn, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. It's, I don't know what page um, it's on in various Bibles, but in your seat Bible that's in the little pocket in front of you or under your, your chair there, it's on page 566. And in probably a lot of your ESVs, if you have an ESV, not all of them, but a lot of them. ESV is what we usually use. It's not the only version in town, but it's one that works for us. So that's what you'll hear from this morning and usually. This morning is an introduction to this book. We're going to be spending, I don't know how many years potentially in this book, not straight, mind you. But I felt, I felt it necessary to dedicate an entire morning to a good and thorough and proper introduction. So first I want to deal with four reasons why we're going to spend some time in the book of Isaiah. First of all, it's one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. As I've been preaching largely from the New Testament since I've been here the last 13 years, from John, from Hebrews, uh, and most recently from, from Ephesians, uh, of course that's led us to a number of different places, but one of the things that have struck me has struck me is the number of times that the book of Isaiah is referenced or alluded to. I found different accounts. One, one suggested that it's 65 times or so in the New Testament. Another said 85 times or so that it's actually quoted or alluded to. It is often quoted and in, in a context that makes you believe that the hearers heard it almost as given background and context that they were so familiar with it that it's something that, that the preacher or the teacher or the gospel writer could use in a way that was almost assumed. There wasn't even a lot of explanation necessary. I found it quoted in every gospel. I found it quoted in most of the epistles, especially the book of Romans. I found it even quoted in the book of Revelation. It apparently is context for the New Testament. Now the problem is, we can oftentimes find ourselves parachuting into the New Testament. Now, let me explain that for a minute. Years ago, 1988, I had the chance to go to jump school, Army jump school. I wasn't in the Army. I was a Marine, but I had the chance to go to Army jump school. And I don't know if you've ever had, had to spit out the window when you're going 55, 60, 75 miles down the highway where you roll the window down and you spit and you just go straight back. But that's what it's like jumping out of a plane. Okay, I found that. It's like being spit out the window. And you just spin around. You go all kind of different directions until that parachute actually opens. And when you actually land, you have no clue what cardinal directions are. You know up from down, at least after a few moments, after you kind of get situated. But I'm telling you, it's like being spit out the window. So parachuters can land on the ground, and the first thing they have to do is try and figure out where am I, which way is north, which way are the bad guys, which way are the good guys, which way am I going. We can find ourselves in our context, Christians 2,000 years after Christ, spending so much time in the New Testament that we just merely parachute in, spun around, and really have no idea what's actually being said there. I heard an illustration by a guy years ago. I read it, actually. His name is Peter Lightheart. He, he shared a, a joke with his kids. This is, I think, the third joke. I've told this once before. So this is, I'm going to count this as the third joke I've told in 13 years. And this is it. A doctor, a lawyer, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a bar. 
And the bartender looks up and says, what, am I in a joke? Okay, Ginevra got it. Peter Leinhardt wrote that in his book. He said he told that joke to his kids and they didn't get it. And the reason they didn't get it is because they didn't have a library of doctor, lawyer, rabbi, priest jokes to understand the context. They hadn't heard enough of those to get the, the irony in the whole joke. And what I fear is as Christians 2,000 years this side of Christ, who should and do spend a lot of time in the New Testament, that we may parachute in never really getting the context. We hear the metric sound of a punchline, and we know it's supposed to be funny, so we laugh, but we never really get it in a visceral, heart, deep way that would make martyrs of us if it cost us that potentially. So man, one reason we're going to spend time in Isaiah is because I think it keeps us from being parachuters. We move into the context, knowing where cardinal directions are, knowing where the bad guys are, the good guys, knowing what direction we're headed. Secondly, there are two stories in our Old Testaments that I believe are tragically underdeveloped in contemporary church. Now, realize when I say, when I reference contemporary church, I haven't been at all of them. (laughs) I have a I have some brief windows, longer, some longer than others, into contemporary church. And what I've found in contemporary church, this isn't a knock against where I've been for my mom and dad who listen to every sermon. I'm not anti-church where I grew up. I'm thankful for it, Mom. <laughs> I fear that the exile and the exodus are two things that are underdeveloped in our story. And in, in order, the exodus and then the exile. They, among a few other things, are what I would call the high water marks of our Bible. Creation, flood, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the exile, the beauty in the book of Isaiah is that it's going to build into us an, an understanding, a context that led up to the events that led up to and through and even after the Babylonian exile. And even on top of that, we're going to have some view to the Assyrian exile for the the nation of Israel. More on that later. Third, this, this may be my favorite thing. Isaiah is going to quip the Salmons. Now, I'm not talking about salmon. I've been out to dinner with Jeff Willingham before. He's not here this morning, so he won't, be, won't feel bad about me sharing this story. Where Jeff Willingham actually ordered salmon, but he said salmon. And I wanted to crawl under the table. Okay, the L is silent and salmon. But there's a guy in our Bible that apparently his name actually is S-A-L-M-O-N. I'm sure they didn't call him Salmon. It's a bummer of a name. He may have had a brother named Trout. I mean, who knows? Okay, this guy in our Bible, he's in the genealogy lists that led up to Christ. And if you know where Salmon, actually his name is pronounced Salmon, where Salmon fits in, he's Boaz's dad. And there's no other details about Salmon. He's just Boaz's dad. If you know the story of Boaz, you know he's a key figure. But Salmon was nothing more, apparently, than Boaz's dad. The cool thing about us spending some time in the book of Isaiah, I believe, is it's going to equip faithful Salmons. I'm going to call Salmon a placeholder. He's just a placeholder in the story. He holds on to the story. He holds on to the faith. He's a father. He's a son to somebody. I can't remember that guy's name. But he's a father 
to Boaz. And he's just a faithful placeholder. He must have, I trust that Salmon had a view to his responsibility of just being a faithful placeholder. See, everybody wants to be a Samson or Samuel. But man, we need a bunch of Salmons. And we may find ourselves wanting to be a big name and a big storyline when what we might be in our context is just somebody's dad and somebody's son and somebody's wife and somebody's mother that's just holding a place for tomorrow's church, a faithful place. I believe this book, Isaiah, equips us for that because we see people as part of a big story and you see lots of placeholders in this book. Fourth, I believe it's going to help us understand the gospel better. I fear sometimes the good news is really just news for us. It's a, a, a big statement. I want to be, you know, make a caricature of some um, lack of potency in our worship or anything like that. That's not a doomsday, skies falling comment. But just sometimes I wonder if we're not really built into the context, if we haven't digested it and we don't understand the backdrop, how dark this world actually was and is, then the news could just be news. But this book, Isaiah, is going to paint a really dark backdrop for where the light of the world is born into. So I believe with everything in me, it's going to be a beautiful gospel developer for us. Where the good news will not only be good, it'll be great. As I've studied the book of Isaiah so far, it's felt to me like a 66-chapter-long version of Genesis chapter 3. If you took the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and the consequences of the fall where the curses were meted out, but then there's a hint at a blessing where Eve's offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. There's some good news in there as well. That's the way the book of Isaiah feels in 66 chapters. Now, as to plan, that's the why. Why Isaiah? Now, as to our plan, plan of action, we're going to spend the next six weeks covering the first three to four chapters. Okay? And then at a undisclosed, undetermined, yet to be determined time, we're going to tackle the next six weeks or five or six weeks. When I'm good and ready, which it, I'm not being obstinate in there, it's just lots of work and lots of study, and it's just not an easy book. And I don't want relentless Isaiah for you either. So we're going to spend five or six, we're going to spend right now six weeks developing and working through the first three to four chapters. Now, the first five chapters, if and with, not if, you should begin to read Isaiah, but as you do, read the first five chapters as like a preface to the book as an introduction to the rest of the book. It is the rest of the book in macro, a bird's-eye view of the rest of the book. And they're in oracles. It's not a word we use very often. An oracle, at least in the book of Isaiah, is like a less definite prophecy. It's very much like a prophecy, but it's not as defined and definite where you can point to a day and time where the thing is fulfilled. It's more about flavor of the character of the people. And that's the first five chapters of this book. An introduction, a collection of oracles about the state of this people and what they would eventually be. And then, like I said, we'll tackle the next section when we're ready. 
Also regarding this plan, I want you to understand that there will be a significant component of teaching in each of these sermons, especially this morning. A significant teaching component. I believe the most effective preaching is undergirded by effective teaching. Now, as I say that, I want you to understand that people that are regulars on Wednesday nights, they hear sermons very differently than you do if you're not a regular on Wednesday night or if you don't ever come at all. And the reason they do is because a lot of this context that I'm talking about this morning is built, to them, built into them as we've been going through the prophets for the last couple of years. Well, not just the prophets, the entire Old Testament. But what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do that on a Sunday morning, and it's going to be a course in the study of God's people. I'll save this illustration for later, but I will tell you this right now. I was at seminary before I understood the storyline. I grew up in a church, a great church. Thank you, Mom, Dad, for taking me. It's an awesome church. But I didn't understand the storyline. Exodus, exile, Moses, Abraham, uh, you know, Adam and Eve I could pretty much get. They're kind of way up front. You know, but anything else was just... And the books that were connected to those names, forget about it. Man, I, you know, that's, that, that's not okay. okay. It's okay if you're there this morning where you can't really piece out a plan and a line, timeline, but it's not okay for you to stay there, not if you're a worshiper of Jesus. Okay? And it's not okay for us to not give a significant investment to developing something, uh, develop, developing this storyline where some of you may not find yourselves later on in life not being able to really read your Bible, figure out where, what goes where. Now, the next comment on the plan, it's going to involve long-haul teaching, preaching, and application. If you're here this morning wanting to make a beeline to how your life is going to be better and how things can be more, uh, um, just life is just good for you as a result of this sermon, you may not find that this morning. Hopefully, you can park those desires and just sit at the feet of God for a little bit this morning as we learn from Him about His story. Okay, It's going to be long-haul teaching and preaching, and application. And I've already resigned myself to the fact that it may make for a smaller church. That's okay. That's okay. That's not my job to grow the biggest church. My job is to be faithful in telling the story and preaching the story. And the size of the church and the people that stick with it are God's business. Now, I hope everybody does. I really do. But I realize on any given morning, on a given Sunday morning, we have worshipers and we have consumers and I don't want to feed consumers or be enslaved to that. I want to be faithful equipping worshipers. So that's why we're going to have some long-haul teaching, preaching, and application, working through this book in time, and that, that will keep us from parachuting into the good news. Now, here's one little charge for you before we get into background. Be patient as you learn the characters. Over breakfast a couple of mornings ago, I heard Christy and Daniel talking about the yearling. Daniel's reading it for school, and Christy's never read it, so she's reading it too. So they're sharing the book, and they're trying to, you know, where's the book? Well, it's on my bed. Okay, well, go get it. It's my turn. And they're talking about the yearling over breakfast, and they both just started it, and they're trying to figure out all the characters. Well, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And what's going on over here and what's going on? They've just started the book. And as you know, if you've just started a book before, there's some work getting into it. Once you figure out who the characters are, though, then you're carried along with the story. 
And now Isaiah is not going to be any different than that. Because there are some characters, there's some time frames, there's some context that will be work to get into. But once you're into it, we'll all be carried along through the rest of the book like Christy and Daniel will be in the yearling. If you're a visitor this morning, let me just encourage you, give it a couple of weeks. Give it a few weeks. It may be different from anything that you've ever heard or experienced in church before. But just give us a couple of weeks. Folks that have been around Crosspoint for a while, we've, done, we've started a book before, so you know how we do it. So if you haven't before, I want to encourage you to stick around. Now, background. Put that first slide up for me, that line. I don't always use visuals and slides, but sometimes I do. And, and they're usually, if not always, when I'm involved, hand-drawn. And it's so funny because I have people that want to give me these beautiful graphic representations of what I've actually drawn. And I'm like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm like an, an, an Irishman during the potato famine. They're trying to give him some corn. He says, no, no, thank you. I don't like corn. I'm okay with my drawn, hand-drawn timelines because they work for me. And I've actually found that they're suitable for framing. I'll get you a copy if you'd like one. I found that people actually, they're endearing after a while. You, you kind of learn to enjoy them and, and get used to them. Right now, all I have on here is a line. And, we're gonna, and, and, and Jeff Willingham gave me this. It's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun with our cat. We drive our cat crazy with it. It's pretty, pretty great. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you have a cat and not one of these, you need to get one. So anyway, I'll explain this line here in a moment. But let me give you some context. I fear that sometimes, I've already alluded to this a little bit, we're, we, are, we, we are not really saturated with the story of Israel. That if someone asks us to fill out a timeline with even approximate dates or even order of events, that we might have a difficult time doing that. That many may not even be able to identify where the call of Abraham fits in, or the exodus, or the exile. And that's okay this morning, but it's not okay six months from now or a year from now or five years from now. Uh, this is the illustration that I was waiting to share. I'm going to share it now. Ooh, i got to be careful with this. I thought about this in life group the other day. We were talking about life group Monday night, our life group met, and we, talk, we thought about how ridiculous it would be for a bunch of adults to sit around just talking about our birthdays. And I'm just not talking about even our most recent birthday, because I would have 47 stories. Now, I wouldn't remember all of them. But I would have lots of stories to tell. I'm talking about your original birthday. Now, since you don't remember it, that this illustration is a little bit strained, but, but just imagine that you've heard from your family members what your birthday was like. You know, it was a dark and stormy night. And your mom and I, we had our bags packed. I mean, you can think about how the story goes. You, know, a, you have your own version of that. Some of you may have been born in a taxi cab or something. It's really an amazing story. But just imagine how weird if a bunch of adults, all we ever did was sit around and talk about our birthday. Well, sometimes I feel like church can be like that. And how lame it is if all we ever do is sit around and talk about our spiritual birthdays. And then we run out of things to talk about and we just kind of start looking at each other and we don't talk about anything of any substance because we don't have the rest of the story fleshed out. And it's just this id, this spiritual id that's just been fed from day one where it's all about your conversion and your birthday. There's so much more to the story. And when you climb into this storyline and you realize where you sit on the storyline, then your birthday still matters, but it's not everything anymore. you got so much more to talk about. So this morning, 
is going to be an investment in this line. I realize, too, that you know, stuff like this and stuff like this up here is not real sexy, not, not, real, not real cool for preaching and all. I don't really care. You know, I, I'm, you know and, and two, telling the story of the nation of Israel may not be real sexy either. But I thought about two, two of the most amazing sermons in our Bible. Now, I'm not there. They're among the most amazing sermons in our Bible. We're just somebody telling the story. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he just tells the story and says, repent and believe. And there are like thousands of people falling out believing. Stephen, a few chapters later in Acts, he just tells the story. Now, he gets stoned, but it's still a great sermon. <laughs> just telling the story, repent and believe. So that's what we're going to do at least today is we're going to tell a little bit of the story. So you'll be able to flesh out your timeline in your head, on paper, as a family. And you'll even eventually be able to connect some books to it. Now, we started with this line up here, and this, this is like interactive. This thing's going to flesh out as we talk. So watch how high-speed and high-tech this, this drawing actually is. First, we're going to start with creation. Did you see that? Did you see how that just like appeared on there? That's pretty cool, isn't it? It was almost imperceptible how that just appeared right there. That says creation. Now, that little jagged line right there, that's to show that we don't know exactly when that was. All right? I put 8 B.C. because I'm a young earth guy, but there's also a question mark underneath that that you can't tell right there. There's a question mark in B.C. Because some people that love Jesus and uh, believe that he's the son of God and virgin birth and crucified and risen believe that the earth is a kajillion years old, and that, that's okay. I don't agree with you. The reason I don't agree with you, just a little side note, is because I believe the earth could not be created without the appearance of age. It sets me free for carbon dating and billions of light years from the farthest star and all these questions that people have. Not the farthest star, but the ones you can see. You know, these, these, these objections that people have. If you see Adam and Eve walking through the garden on day eight, they're probably going to look like 15, well, maybe 18, 20-year-old people. But yet they're a day old. You cut a tree down, it's probably going to have rings in it. It's going to appear to be older than it is, a rock. If you carbon date it on day nine, it's going to say it's billions of years old because it's, that's the way we measure things. But it was just made yesterday. So that's why I'm completely good with a young earth, but I'm not, not telling you if you believe in an old earth, you're somehow wicked and, and, and not going to heaven. Okay, So you're okay. Creation. Adam and Eve are created. Okay, We're going to start right there with Adam and Eve. They sin and they fall, and that's the term that we use is the fall. They are evicted from the garden. The reason I believe in a literal creation week is because I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I don't think they're metaphor. I don't think they're figurative of mankind. See the little fall we drew on, drew on there? That's the fall of man. Okay? Anytime you hear people talk about the fall of man, that's what we're talking about. Okay? Shortly after that, well, not shortly necessarily. Well, this is short, actually. Cain proved that man is a rebellious bunch. The first child of Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve hadn't proven already that they're rebellious, Cain just reinforced it and proved that, he's, that man is rebellious. And then over the course of time, the rest of mankind proved so sinful that God ordained judgment, judgment by water, lots of it, via the flood. And the flood, we can see that. Pretty cool. Now, I have a question mark, B.C., because we don't know exactly when that was. Some people will give you a date. 
3,000 years or so before Jesus or something like that. But we don't know exactly when that was. But what's interesting about the flood is only a remnant made it out alive. Noah and his family, his three sons, Larry Curley and Mo, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were actually their names. The reason I always think about the Stooges because there's one of the Stooges named Shem, I think, or something like that. But it was the, the, you know, him, he and his three sons, the only remnant that made it out alive. Now, that's important for Isaiah. A remnant made it through judgment alive. Okay? Man landed and began repopulating the earth and proved with every generation that the heart of man is desperately sick. And I say is because the flood didn't fix man's problem. Hear me say that. The flood did not fix and purify man. The only difference between pre-flood man and post-flood man is one is drier. That's it. The flood didn't fix man. Now, in the course of time, God called a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans in 2000 B.C. Abram. It says Abraham right there. Later, he's renamed Abraham. He called him to pick up and move to a land that he would show him. And this land was godless. It was inhabited by every ite that you can imagine. Canaanite, Hittite, Jebusite. Amalekite, all these ites, all these, these pagan people fill this land that God is promising to Abram. And oh, by the way, Abram was really old and he's married to a woman that is barren and can't have children. But God turns out, calls the least likely out of a dark world to go to a dark place. And he promised this old man and his barren wife many offspring in an inheritance of the land. Then Abram and Sarai, later renamed Abraham and Sarah, have a boy named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have twins named Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a heel-grabbing, lying little mama's boy. And Esau is a red, hairy red guy, this manly, earthy, manly man. I like Esau. I've never really liked Jacob. But God turns out, again, takes the least likely to succeed, the foolish things that confound the wise, and he chooses Jacob over Esau to continue the promise. So Jacob leaves home with the birthright, the blessing, and God's promise. But if this promise is to be fulfilled, then Jacob is going to need a missus. <laughs> and he gets missuses in spades. He gets a couple of wives. First of all, he gets these two wives through one of the craziest stories in our Bible. And then he gets each of their maidens. And he actually functionally ends up with four wives and has 12 boys and one girl. Now, this entire family ends up having to leave the land that was promised to Jacob's granddaddy because of famine. They leave that land through Joseph's story to go to Egypt. And it's here that a short visit to survive famine back in Canaan becomes a 400-year enslavement. Then God calls Moses to deliver his people through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues and ultimately the exodus from Egypt. We place that on our timeline 
at about 1,500 years before Jesus, 1.5K B.C. Now, these are not down to the year. They're general numbers that you can remember. 2,000 years before Christ, God called Abram. 1,500 years before Christ is the Exodus. And then after the Exodus, it begins a 40-year funeral procession in the wilderness where the first generation dies, and then they end up finally back in the promised land. Then, then, then comes the story of the conquest and Joshua leading the conquest. Then came the period of the judges. Put the judges up there. Some of the coolest, craziest short stories in our Bible are in the book of Judges. Uh, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, that's where the Jephthah, that's where they fit in. Crazy, crazy great stories. And yet more examples of God choosing the least likely to do great things. In this case, to lead Israel. But the problem is Israel pined for a king. All of Israel's neighbors had kings, so Israel pined for a king, an earthly king. They weren't content with the high king of heaven being their king, so they wanted an earthly king, one they could see and touch. So starting with Saul, they get the kings. Now up here, about a thousand years before Jesus, I have right there, you can barely read it, King David. About a thousand years before Jesus is when the king's period begins. Everybody still tracking? If this is dry and lame, just imagine yourself hearing the sermon at Pentecost or hearing Stephen's sermon before he's stoned. It's not dry and lame. It's our story. You'll find out here in a minute. Okay? Starting with Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then as a result of Solomon's son, Rehoboam's poor leadership, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. Now watch how this thing changes here. Did you see that? Go back one slide, two, two slides. One more. See, it's like one line, but then next, what's the next one? Oh, yeah, two little lines there. Look at that. Okay, now flip, hit the next one to fill it in. Okay, the kingdom is split right here. Israel is in the northern kingdom. That's why I put them above, because the north, we can imagine being this way. And then Judah is to the south, and Judah is just one tribe. Israel is everybody else to the north. And this is the period of the kings. Okay? And then these little squiggly lines, the reason they're not real refined is when they sort of migrate their way back after something I'm about to tell you about. As they migrate their way back to Israel. Now the kingdom is split, and our Bibles have such great stories in there that oftentimes are just read or cherry-picked from, and they don't really get what are, what's going on there. The, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are about this period right here. And if you read them and you're like, man, what, this king is over here and this king is over here, this king is over here. Some of the kings are in the north and some of the kings are in the south. And they're telling the story of each of those kings. Now, here's what's cool. If double mint gum is twice the flavor, minty flavor, this split kingdom is twice the proof that the, the heart of man is deceitful and dark. The flood didn't fix anything. Even the call of Abraham didn't somehow make a people that are somehow pure. It's two times the heartbreak. It's two times the sin. It's two times the bad news and disappointment and roller coaster. It's twice the proof that no earthly king can or will ever compare to the high king of heaven. One king after another. Even the best of them show some serious deficiencies. Now, 
It's this context of the kings. Hit this next slide. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you about these two events. No, that's right. Yeah. This is the fall of the northern kingdom, the destruction of Samaria, or the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now hit the next one. And there's 587 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, to the southern kingdom. And that's, that's why I had these squiggly lines, because over time, some of them, not all of them, migrate back to Israel. A lot of them don't, and they end up being what are referred to in our New Testaments as the diaspora. When Peter writes to the believers that are the, and the Jewish believers that are all over the de- dispersion, that's who he's writing to, because they, they went all over the, the empire, and they're spread all over the place. Now, some of them came back, though, and that's why that squiggly line. Now, hit the next one. I have two of those. Go back one, uh, go one more. Yeah, where's, where's my one with Isaiah right here? No, no, I see not last. He's right now. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I was going to point out, here's Jesus right here. That's important on the timeline. Agreed? <laughs> right? And this is also important on the timeline here. CF, that's Cross Point Fellowship. 2015 A.D. We're on the timeline on purpose, and I'll explain that later. But right here, that didn't come out real well. That's in color. That's Isaiah. He served in the southern kingdom, but although he did have some messages for Israel as well, the northern kingdom, but primarily to Judah and Jerusalem during this period between the window of about 750 to 700 B.C. Okay? That's where Isaiah fits into the story. Now, you can kill all that. Wait, actually, leave it up in case some people are drawing that. And then just in a few minutes, just shut it down. Now, the book. I promise you we're going, to get, we're going to get to the first verse this morning. That's all we're going to do. And we're, we're, we're moving along. It's not going to be a mega sermon or anything. Okay, but this is, this is necessary. Let me just acquaint you with the book so you know how to read it. 66 chapters. Okay, that's easy to see as you, you thumb through it. But it's a mixture of poetry, oracles, prophecy, and one little short narrative section that goes chapters 36 through 39. The narrative section in chapters 36 through 39 are about the siege around Jerusalem during Hezekiah's reign by the Assyrians. It's a great story. Okay? The book covers three different time frames. This is why, I'm, this, is why this morning is an important deposit. Because if, you, if you're not aware of how to read it, you just don't even know what you're reading. It covers three different time frames. Chapters 1 through 39 cover Isaiah's lifetime while he's alive. Chapter 40 through 45 deal with after Isaiah's death during the Babylonian exile or in the events that lead up to the exile and during the exile, which is well after Isaiah's dead and gone. And then the last part of the book, chapters 56 through 66, deal with even further after Isaiah's dead and gone with the restoration to the land. Now, here's the cool thing about the book of Isaiah. This one book, first of all, chapters 1 through 39, must have been just a sweet encouragement to a king named Hezekiah, one of the good kings. They must have strengthened Hezekiah as Isaiah is writing these words, present tense, in chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 40 through 55 would have, I believe, strengthened Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rakshak and Benny. You, you Veggie Tales fans. 
Think about it. These guys, Daniel, would have been galvanized and strengthened with Isaiah's words that were written, in that case, 100 years or so before they found themselves in Babylon. And then the last little period, those chapters 56 through 66, I can't help but imagine that those words wouldn't have encouraged and galvanized and strengthened Ezra and Nehemiah to go back home to Israel and for Ezra to get the temple up and running and for Nehemiah to build a wall. What an amazing book. I love that it covers these three time frames. It's wonderful to imagine that God used Isaiah's prophetic words to rouse, to sustain the people of God well after he's gone. You reckon he can do that for us? Reckon? I reckon. That's why we're going to spend our time in it. Now, verse 1. <laughs> That's like the longest intro in history. That's okay, though. It's not an easy book. We're just going to look at verse 1 today. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Just a few thoughts about this first verse. First of all, Isaiah had a front row seat to the reign of reigns of five kings. Now, if you're counting there, you notice that there's only four mentioned. Okay? His ministry began under Uzziah's reign, and it ended under Manasseh's reign. And I'll introduce you to each of these here briefly. I'll just tell you as a big picture, two of these kings were pretty good. Two of them were really bad. Well, I should say two were pretty good. One was great. And then two were pretty terrible. Uzziah was the first king, and he was a pretty good king. Isaiah's ministry began the year that Uzziah died. If you've read Isaiah chapter 6, you know that's how it begins. Then there was Jotham. That's Uzziah's son. He did a pretty good job following in Uzziah's footsteps. He was a pretty good king. Then there's Ahaz, Jotham's son. Ahaz was not a good king, and he's a great example of a guy who trusted in all the wrong things. You're going to hear a lot about Ahaz as we move through the rest of this book. Now, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, was one of the best, one of the finest kings that Judah had ever known. And yet his son, Manasseh, was one of the absolute worst. Isaiah died under Manasseh's reign. And as the story goes, and as Hebrews 11 may be alluding to, the story goes that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh. Not personally, necessarily. He could have, but that he had it done. Crazy. Now, Isaiah was witness to what man often does when he's blessed by God with a garden. Pointing back to, to Genesis chapter 3. What man often does when he's blessed with a beautiful vineyard, when he's blessed with a beautiful city, when he's blessed with a mulligan. Isaiah is a front row seat to that, to the dark heart of man, how we are so, they were so, and we are so easily led away by a serpent, by the neighboring people, by whoever beckons from underneath every green tree. That's a theme, that's a theme of the prophets. Calling from underneath every green tree. See, the north and the south were guilty of the same things. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20, tell us a lot about what's in store, the curses for those who disobey and forget God. I encourage you to read that passage just for context, just to study it and consider it. The problem in the north and the south boasted they had forgotten God. They had forsaken Him and were serving other gods, especially those representing power and fertility. Hence the comments about calling and beckoning from underneath every green tree. Graphic imagery of what's going on underneath the green trees. More on this next week as the heavens and the earth are called to be witnesses in the courtroom. Now, Isaiah had a vision from God. I looked at other visions that people had. Man, there's lots of visions. Abram had a vision. Samuel, Nathan, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, David, or Daniel had tons of visions. Obadiah, Nahum, Peter had a vision about some things that you could eat that were permissible to eat that had much more importance than just what you could eat. Paul had a vision of the risen Lord. Visions are common in our Bible, but what is not common in our Bible is a 66-long chapter of one big vision. A 66-chapter-long vision. And man, it's a doozy. It is a beautiful doozy. It covers 66 chapters. It covers 250 years of history. Remember how I broke it down? His life the Babylonian exile, and the restoration to the land. It covers 250 years of history. It is massive in space, words, chapters, but also in scope. The very first verses invite heaven and earth in as witnesses in the high court of heaven. And the very last verses in chapter 66, verse 22, tell us about a new heavens and a new earth that leaves us with altogether newly created heavens and earth. This book is massive in scope. This vision is about a whole new transformed creation. Secondly, the first few verses of the vision give us a view of a corrupted city, Jerusalem, that's vile and wicked. And then the last ones in chapter 65 give us a vision of a new Jerusalem that brings gladness and joy to the Lord. In chapter 1, she's introduced as a whore. But in chapter 65, she's a joy and a beauty. Man, something happened in those 65 chapters. It covers the people of God in the 8th century B.C. all the way through the exile, the restoration to the land, all the way to God's people to the end of time. And chapter 66 is about the end of the age. The promises and prophecies of this book aren't just for these old ancient people. They're for us right now. We're caught up in this book. We're in the storyline. That's the beauty of leaving CF on the page up there and on the line, on the same line. The promises and prophecies of this book are for us. And this vision, this beautiful, wonderful, massive vision, too, it deals with real people on a real stage. It's not fiction. It's real people on a real stage in a very real place called Jerusalem. There are real kings, Uzziah, with real names, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh. 
And there are real people made of, this is a real people with real sons named Isaiah, with a real dad named Amos. This vision involves real people with jobs doing real life. Just You have to remind yourself, I'm not reading a fairy tale. I'm not reading a fictitious story. I'm reading a real account of real people, and it's on this stage of real life that God is working out a very real story. Now, the reason I point that out is because it's the same story that we're part of. We're just in a later chapter. Put that last picture up there. The very last. Boom. You see that? If you get nothing from me in 13 years of ministry, I hope you get that. That we're on this storyline of God's people. And that whether we're a placeholder or a Samson or a Salmon or a Samuel, that we're faithfully walking in that tiny little space that we have on that story. Isaiah is a beautiful picture of this story being unfolding, this the story unfolding being lived out in real life. History then was just as real as life now. The movies paint things so different. They put music behind it and, you know, cinematography and they make it all look all dramatic and everything. There's nothing dramatic for them. It's just like life now. We're on the same storyline. History then was just as real as our lives today and just as important because God is taking history somewhere, always, and we're in it just as much as Isaiah and Amos, his daddy, and just as much as Salmon and Boaz were. Man, we got to get that. He's painting a big old canvas with scenes developing and working together toward one end, his own glory. So read the book of Isaiah as a story of us and a story of our people, not as some old ancient people that you might be able to glean a few lessons from. Lastly, I'll comment, I'll make a brief comment. It's a story about a remnant being preserved. Man, this is a theme in this book, the preservation of a remnant. What you're going to see over the course of our time together is the church is the continuation of that remnant. We're a remnant preserved. We join Noah and Larry, Curly, and Moe and the rest of them. The irony, I use that irony on purpose. The foolish things that confound the wise to be included in this remnant. But here's the big thing. This is the last thing for the morning before we have our supper. And maybe the most treasured for me that I've found in studying this book so far. This book, I believe, and this vision deals with Darkness developing realities, and then almost unbelievable, unfathomable eventualities. And they're sometimes right next to each other, sometimes in the same chapter. Darkness developing realities, and then unbelievable eventualities that for me create an itch right square in the middle of my back. One that I I'm like, mm, give me a, I can't get to it. But it's one that is profound, and it's right in the middle of my back. And here's this pregnant question that has developed for me. How will Israel actually become Israel eventually? How will dark 
vile, wicked, idolatrous Israel become beautiful, joyful, glorious, new Israel? How will a wicked city become a city on a hill where the nations pour to it? How will an overgrown and overrun vineyard become a beautiful garden? How will an idolatrous and unfaithful people become faithful and true? Something so profound, so otherworldly must happen to scratch this itch. And here's how it scratched, people of God. In this book, this special something that scratches that itch is a someone. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord rests on him. He's a humble and gentle servant. He's how Israel actually becomes Israel eventually. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. He was not esteemed. Yet he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Man, this suffering servant is the scratch to that itch that makes all things new. A new heavens and new earth. A new Jerusalem. A new Israel. He's how a remnant is preserved. He's how Israel actually becomes Israel eventually. Let's pray. What a wonderful, wonderful book, Lord. I anticipate some hard work, some laboring, to preach, laboring to prepare, laboring even to listen. But God, I anticipate some wonderful, wonderful context. Some martyr-making context. Some deep and visceral truths that will bring into focus for us the gospel so it'll be so much more than just news. I need... I need this book. I need what I know you're going to do to us and through us and on us and in us in this book. I commit ourselves to you as we submit to sitting at your feet and learning from you through this wonderful, massive vision. And Lord... I'm thankful for that someone that takes care of that big pregnant question. We enjoy him now in the supper. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.